This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Daniel Barchi, CIO of New York Presbyterian. Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Laura. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about, so let's dive right in. Could you tell me more about the $15 million investment that New York Presbyterian has made in developing AI tools for cardiovascular care? Tell me about the investment and why it was so important for the system to make it now. Sure, I'm glad to. You know, that specific investment is part of an overall investment that New York Presbyterian has been making for years in research in partnership with Columbia and Weill Cornell, our research and medical school partners to advance the care of medicine and patients in our institutions. So more recently, we determined that what we wanted to do was focus not only on traditional approaches to research, but to leverage the capabilities not only of Columbia and its medical school, but Columbia University, and not just Weill Cornell Medicine, but Cornell and Cornell Tech, their engineering departments, their business departments, their computer science departments. So this specific investment was with Cornell Tech here in New York City to bring more AI resources into the work that we were already doing in cardiology and cardiovascular research. Part of what we think is going to be successful here is that we've got great data sets. We have world-class physicians at Weill Cornell and Columbia and the research going on. And then bringing the Cornell Tech AI to bear on the data sets is one way we could advance the kind of care that we're doing here. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point. And, you know, it's just so interesting to hear about all the opportunities that are available in data technology right now and really seeing how that digital transformation is advancing. So when you look at what it took to build this program and obviously your partnership with Weill Cornell, as well as the years of time and effort energy that went into it, what has been some of the most rewarding things throughout that process? How were you able to build and develop uh, the technology needed to get to this point? Well, I think it's important to recognize that uh, this is just one piece of a much larger infrastructure and body of work that's going on. Columbia, Weill Cornell have been doing research for years. They are national leaders in NIH funding and advances in medical care. The number of advancements and firsts that came out of the work that's happened over the past 100 years is just incredible. But interestingly, if you look back 100 years, that's a lot of the foundation here. Our CEO talks about the Flexner Report coming out in 1911 and revolutionizing the way that care is delivered by combining hospitals with medical schools to create academic medical centers, something that hadn't existed before. His vision was that we create a Flexner 2.0 and go beyond the way that we did it before. So to your point, what's rewarding? It's seeing the teams come together be using data in a way that we hadn't before, leverage much larger data sets, align them in ways that we hadn't before, and then make them available to researchers, particularly researchers who are applying AI to the care in a way that we hadn't done before. Recently, I heard one of our researchers talk about the way that we're using AI to use 12-lead ECGs to predict um, atrial fibrillation and other clinical conditions. When you look at it and you recognize that an ECG, a pretty straightforward medical test that happens thousands and thousands of times every year, can be used to advance care and diagnosis that is normally done only much later on with much more extensive tests, 
And it's the addition of AI that allows us to use that ECG to make predictions much earlier. And we can actually see the impact it's beginning to have on making predictions of heart failure and other medical conditions. That's really rewarding. Absolutely. I, I love that. And thank you so much for explaining all that to us. Now, when you look broadly, how can health systems more effectively leverage digital transformation? intelligence and clinical analytics to reduce that burden of disease. What do you think we should expect in the future? It's interesting how it's working its way up. It's not surprising that a lot of the applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotic process automation we used in the back office, just like any other business would. So we didn't apply it immediately to clinical care. We were using AI and ML and RPA on invoice processing or timekeeping for our workforce or reducing the workload of our administrative staffs because AI as it was developing and we were getting more experienced with it is something that you want to apply very carefully around clinical care. When we began to apply artificial intelligence in the clinical space, it was not directly for medical care. So we weren't going to tell a physician how he or she should care for a patient. The way we used AI was to say, gee, when a patient comes in for, say, a total um, hip fracture or replacement, then their normal course of stay is 48 hours. Are we getting all of our patients out the door at the appropriate time? Well, we didn't have a defined way of knowing for any clinical condition, like a hip fracture or like a cancer procedure, what the normal estimated date of discharge was. So we did the work of creating estimated dates of discharge for all of our different clinical conditions. And then we began to apply to AI to go back and look at all of our patients over the past 10 years and say, how did they do on hitting those two-day, three-day, four-day estimated dates of discharge? And what was it that got in the way? So that now when a patient comes in and she's supposed to go home Thursday at noon and it's Tuesday at noon, our AI system running in the background will look and say, what are the barriers that stand between this patient and going home safely on time? And if it's an imaging study or a physical therapy referral, and that hasn't been ordered yet, our AI system will actually send a nudge to a physician and say, Mrs. Smith in bed 245 is supposed to be going home 48 hours from now. No physical therapy order has been placed yet. Do you want to place that physical therapy order? And what's the physician going to say? Well, of course, I was going to get around to it. I'm busy. I just haven't had a chance to. Let's go ahead and place that order. So our AI application was not so much this is how you should care for a patient. It was improving the whole process of care and just making suggestions. Now, however, we're starting to apply AI to the clinical space and saying, let's take the imaging study that we've done, apply AI, and get better insights so we can provide care earlier. So it's kind of the way that we've seen AI grow from something which was purely administrative to something running in the background to something where it's really stepping up and being part of a clinical care and research team now. Absolutely. What an interesting evolution uh, for, for all of that technology and really to integrate into the clinical space. And I'm definitely excited to see um, how everything is going to make a really big impact on patient care. How do you see technologies growing and developing in that way? What technologies are truly needle moving as you're thinking about improving patient outcomes? You know, Laura, when you ask that question, I'm reminded of the phrase, you know, what's the best camera in the world? And it's the one you have in your hand when you need to take a picture. 
So the best technologies, the ones that are moving the needles, are not the ones that are two years out, which may give us cutting-edge insights. It's the tools that we use day in and day out. So would all of our physicians like to have great advanced learning tools that give them the precise data that they need at the moment? Sure. You know what's better every day? An integrated system that gives them the data that they need in the moment. It's not having to search for two minutes to find an imaging study so they can have a consultation with the patient or one of their colleagues. It's instantaneously getting lab results or moving the digital pathology so all of the information is in front of them. So I'm kind of avoiding your question and I'm not calling out a specific piece of technology. I'm more pointing out that it's probably not the technology itself, it's which technology we apply and how we standardize it and make it work well that's really important for physicians and nurses And those are the tools that help them improve care, reduce things like catheter-associated urinary tract infections by getting alerts and alarms, and making decisions in care day in and day out in the way that they need to provide the care. I really appreciate you calling that out because I think you're right. You know, definitely having something that's available that really makes it easier for doctors and nurses to do their job certainly is so important to the overall healthcare system and how care delivery evolves. Now, when you look at New York Presbyterian, has there been anything that you were able to um, implement for the caregivers that they really appreciate and has gone really well? One of the things that I found surprising but is working well is the ability to do um, uh, secure instant communication, so secure chat. So by working it into our advanced EMR and having that embedded feature and allowing physicians to collaborate and communicate and text one another securely in real time, it's really um, decreased the number of times they need to pick up the phone or a nurse needs to walk down the hall to ask a colleague a piece of information. We now send more than 300,000 secure chats every day in our health system. So that's 300,000 times somebody didn't pick up the phone or walk down the hall. And getting the ability to coordinate in real time to provide care or cover from one another in emergency situations, and that alerting is important. Back to my point earlier about not exciting technology, but core technology that works well, One of the things that we've done here is give every one of our care team members a mobile device. So every one of our nurses, physicians, fellows, researchers, phlebotomists, transporters, every one of them has a mobile phone that we've given them so that they care for the patient using the tool in real time at the patient bedside and communicate with one another. And by giving everybody a mobile phone that they take home at night, they charge, they clean, they keep, it it's, has that responsibility of the device in their hand, giving them the information that they need and accessing their all of their peers to provide the care. I think that was kind of a major step forward in thinking like instead of it's a human interacting with a device once in a while, putting the device in their hand, not only when they can get their hands on one, but the expectation is they've got it all the time has allowed us to move up the stack in terms of applying technology directly to the bedside. That's so interesting to hear about. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I also wanted to ask you about health equity. I know that's a topic that 
healthcare organizations across the country are trying to figure out in a big part of that is using technology to reach uh, individuals and community members and close some of those gaps. So what is New York Presbyterian doing to promote health equity and how does technology fit in? One of the things I'm really proud of here at New York Presbyterian is we made an investment to create the Dalio Center for Health Justice. And Dr. Julia Ayashara and her team are day in and day out thinking about how we can promote health equity. Technology is a key portion of it. One of the first things that we did was look at our race and ethnicity data in all of our patients. And we recognized we weren't capturing it really well. We were probably at about a 75, 80% capture of that data. And why is it important? Well, you can't tell if you're treating everybody appropriately if you don't have the demographic data on everybody. So we created a program called We Ask Because We Care. So we taught all of our registrars to ask the patients race and ethnicity data or encouraged people to provide it online while they were doing online registration. And we've improved significantly our percentage capture of race and ethnicity data so we'll know better how we're treating everyone. And then when it comes to actually treating people, we went back and said, gosh, technology can be good, but can be really challenging as well. And particularly if you have algorithmic bias or any bias built into the many tools that we use. So we did an enterprise-wide search of all of our algorithms and processes and tools and said, is there anything in here that's race-based that should not be? And looking at several hundred different algorithms, we found two or three that we found, gosh, we should really go back and ask the physicians about this one. Brought it to our physicians and things like creatinine levels and the expectation that they might be different for a Caucasian person or for a person who's African-American, is that really appropriate or is that an outdated measure? And by going through all of that, we've tried to wipe out algorithmic bias. And then every time we implement a new system, we have a process to review to make sure we don't introduce bias into the system. And then I'll give you one example I'm really proud of. When we were rolling out vaccines during the pandemic and we set up a vaccination center, we didn't set it up in one of New York's wealthier neighborhoods. We set it up in Washington Heights in an armory. So we'd be in the neighborhood where people who might not otherwise get the care had easy access to it. And although it seems counterintuitive, we made all the appointments for vaccinations online so that people couldn't just walk up and get the appointments And they couldn't just get on the phone and just wait at a call center and call and call and call for somebody who might have the time to do that. We said, everybody's got to make an online appointment for people in uh, the neighborhoods, the underserved neighborhoods that we serve. We made some of those appointments available through churches and community centers and other community activist groups so that they could reach out to people who might not have otherwise access to all of the appointments. But, and this is where having the technology is good, Every day when we made two or 3,000 appointments available, we would decide which New York City zip codes we made them available to. So we committed to New York State that we would be very equitable in the way that we rolled out the vaccinations. And by making those vaccination appointments available by zip code, we could ensure that we were reaching New York's underserved and making vaccinations equitable for all. And it's that kind of proactive work that you often don't think about but is the way that you make things equal. And I'm proud of what we were able to do. That's really impressive. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really fun conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much, Laura.